So this afternoon, let's talk about the church assembly. Last time I had the opportunity to speak, if you'll recall, we talked about the Jewish synagogue and how they, they had started together there after the time of the exile. And when they returned, perhaps while they were in exile, they began to worship in synagogues. And when they returned, they made that a very common practice and, and a common gathering place and shifted from temple worship, which was instructed and we can find in the Old Testament law and have, have a guide for, they shifted to synagogue worship, which we can't find a guide for really necessarily in the Old Testament. But they made that shift nonetheless, and then as the church becomes uh, a thing and gets established, uh, we see that they begin to uh, adopt some of that format uh, some of the way that the Jews were worshiping in the synagogue, the early Christians used that, and really God used that. Even though that had been a departure from, from the way he instructed them to worship, God uses that, and, and the church could not have become what it became. It could not have expanded. Christianity could not have expanded into what it became if not for those synagogues. And so they were very important. And we see Paul utilizing them extensively in his ministry. The other apostles utilizing them extensively in their ministry to meet. And they usually went in on the Sabbath day and met with them in those synagogues. And they preached Jesus. And they preached the gospel. And people were converted. And uh, then we, we come into the time of the church. And, and the church meets on the first day of the week. But oftentimes, uh, history records that they would meet in those same buildings, in those same places, or they would meet in their homes. Sometimes synagogues were in homes of, of Jews, and so we have this kind of blurred line of, of what were they doing there? Were they meeting in the synagogue as, a, as synagogue worship, or were they meeting in the church as a church gathering or church assembly? And so we, we have that to consider as we work through the book of Acts, so we talked about synagogue a little last time. We're going to talk about the church assembly a little this time. And then, Lord willing, as we go, we'll, we'll dive deeper into some of these different aspects of the assembly as we go along. What is the church assembly? And so you recall last time I had the slide of synagogue and, and a slide of, of ecclesia or the church. And we kind of looked at the definitions of those two things. Today I just want to look at a piece of that definition of ecclesia to, to uh, understand what we're talking about today. You know, we talked about ecclesia. It could mean just a general gathering of people, having nothing to do with, with worship, nothing to do with Christianity, just a, just a gathering in general. It could mean a gathering of the Israelites. It could mean several different things. But for our purposes today and the words that we're going to be looking at and the verses we're going to be studying, it means an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. It is the assembly of the church, the gathering together of Christians meeting for religious purposes. Uh, a company of Christians or of others uh, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus observe their own religious rites, hold their own religious meetings, and manage their own affairs according to the regulations prescribed for the body for order's sake. And so that's the way that it's defined in, in Strong's. That's, that's the word ecclesia, translated most of the time as church in the New Testament. A couple of times it's translated as, as assembly. 
So let's look again at, at an, a couple of examples of this. In Acts chapter 11 and verse number 26, the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas here go down to Antioch, and it says they assemble together with the church. What does that mean? It just means that they gathered together with them. That was a very regular thing in New Testament times. You know, we think about the assembly being the first day of the week, and certainly we assemble on the first day of the week. I believe they assembled a lot more often than that, as we have record of in the New Testament. They assembled very regularly. They got together for religious purposes, to learn and to, to worship together. But it says that Paul and Barnabas for a whole year, they assembled themselves with the church. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, it says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how that he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. They gathered the church together. The apostles, as they passed through that area, they knew there were Christians there, and they wanted them to gather together into one place so that they could talk to them about what they were doing uh, among the Gentiles at that time. How that the door of faith had been opened unto the Gentiles. They wanted the church to know that. They wanted them to understand that, that the, this door had been opened and they could preach to the Gentiles and that Gentiles could be part of the church. And so they gathered everybody together and they taught them. They instructed them. That's the assembly of the church. We also talked uh, about synagogue and this word uh, synagogue. It was a name that was transferred. And this again, this is just a piece of that definition. We know that synagogue could have been a building. It could have been reference to the top worship that was happening there by the Jews in the first century. This is just that little piece that applies to what we're talking about today. A name transferred to an assembly of Christians formally gathered together for religious purposes. So sometimes they called it synagogue. Sometimes they called it church. Sometimes they called it synagogue. Sometimes they called it other things. We noticed in, um, in the book of Acts, in chapter 18 and verse number 8, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So what happened when a chief ruler of the synagogue who ran the synagogue that was in his house, or maybe it was an adjoining building. But here's Crispus, he's the chief ruler. What happened when he believed? And when he began to, to be sympathetic to Christians and let Paul and them come in and preach? It says, well, the, many people believed, uh, heard, believed, and were baptized. The gospel was preached, and they heard that there in the synagogue. And so... You know, a lot of times, as it would appear, when somebody like this would turn to Christianity, then that synagogue that they were either the ruler of, or maybe they had in their house, that just became a church. And they shifted from that worship synagogue type, Jewish type worship, into an assembly of Christians gathered together for religious purposes. And that's just kind of the evolution of what took place there in the first century. Some of those folks didn't want to hear it. And we can read about Paul and Barnabas being run out of synagogues and other apostles being run out of town when they went into this synagogue. They weren't like Crispus. They didn't receive it quite as well as him. But many of them did. And we see that conversion 
taken place. We have a third word I want to notice in relation to what is an assembly of the church, and that is episynagogue. And it is a gathering together in one place, the religious assembly of Christians. And we see a couple of examples of this word in the New Testament. First of all, in Hebrews 10 and verse 25, where it says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Read this verse many, many times and talk about encouraging one another in the assembly of the church and not leaving the assembly of the church and and forsaking it and quitting uh, the process of meeting together. But this is episynagogue and it just refers to the assembling of ourselves, the assembling of a group of Christians together. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. So Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, he's he's beseeching them and he's looking for important things to, to beseech them by, you know. And he says, by the coming of the Lord Jesus and by our gathering together. So he ranks that up there as a very, very important thing. To beseech them by our gathering together. To encourage them by that gathering together. And so the bottom line is this. We go through all these things and whether you want to call it church, whether you want to call it synagogue, whether you want to call it assembly, congregation, whatever you want to call it, the the act of Christians gathering together for religious purposes in a setting like this, outside, in a home, whatever, when we're gathering together for the purpose of, of religion, for the religious purposes of worshiping and, and some of these things we're going to talk about today, it can be an assembly of the church. So what is the origin of the church assembly? Where do we see it begin? And I guess there are a lot of things that we could think about. We could think about when Jesus gathered the twelve together in that upper chamber. Uh, and instituted the Lord's Supper. We, we could look at that maybe as, as possibility or a shadow of the coming of the church assembly, but really it boils down to, to what we see in the book of Acts chapter 2. It says in Acts 2 and 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. There was a group of disciples that had gathered together, and we read about that in Acts 1. They gathered together, they, they appointed a new apostle, and then there was a, there were several of them that had gathered together there, and they were waiting. Uh, Jesus had told them, "Go and wait in Jerusalem until you you see what's going to happen next." And here in Acts two, they've been waiting. It says they were all uh, with one accord in one place. Uh, we know the rest of Acts two how that he sends the Holy Ghost on them. They begin to speak with tongues uh, as the Spirit gives them utterance. And people hear the gospel. Peter preaches the word of God. We talk about that being the first gospel sermon. And he preaches there. Uh, We know that the day of Pentecost was on the first day of the week. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, the day of Pentecost is is called, uh, uh, it was a feast day. And it was in the book of Leviticus. It talks about the fact that from the, the Sabbath, or the day after the Sabbath of the Passover, you count seven weeks or 49 days. And so that's 49 days from, from the first day of the week during the Passover. They would count that amount of time. That's why it's called Pentecost. It was 50 days after that, that, uh, 
Sabbath day and the day of Pentecost was come on that day. So it was the first day of the week. They were gathered there with one accord in one place. Peter preaches this wonderful gospel sermon to them. They say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then we see at the end of that in Acts 2 and verse 41, then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. It was added unto them. Well, who's them? Well, it was the, the group that was gathered there that day, the assembly of Christians that had gathered together. And so that's where we see uh, everything being born. In the next verse there in Acts 2 and 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And so these folks that heard that message that day, they continued steadfastly in that doctrine. That doctrine of assembling together, that doctrine of preaching the gospel, uh, that doctrine that they heard there, they were with, in fellowship with one another, uh, breaking of bread. You know, it's not clear whether that's talking about the communion necessarily or whether they just got together regularly and had meals together. But they continued steadfastly in that as well and in praying together. And so we have the birth of the assembly on the same day as the birth of the church universal. We talk about Acts 2 being the foundation or the, where, where the church was established. It established the church, the body of Christ, universal in its totality. It also established the assembling of ourselves together because that group was assembled there at that particular day. Let's think about now a little bit of, of what is the purpose of the church assembly. Why are we gathered here? Why do we do this? You know, I hear people talk about all the time the fact that, you know, you can worship God anywhere. I don't disagree with that. I think you can worship God anywhere. There are examples of people throughout both the Old Testament and New that would worship God anywhere, anytime, any place. They would worship. We can offer worship in, any, in, in a number of different ways to God. So why do we, we assemble together? I think one of those reasons is for worship. Even though we can worship any time, anywhere, any place, God wants us to come together and worship together sometimes. Why does God want that? Now, I think there are a lot of different reasons that God wants that. But one of the reasons, I think, the gathering together, the assembly of the church, should show that we are unified. It should show that we are together. It should show the world that we love God, that we serve God, and that we want to worship Him and offer our praises of worship unto Him. In John chapter 4, and verses 23 and 24... Jesus tells a woman at the well, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He gives this prescription for worship that it should be done in spirit and in truth. That we should do it in the right way. Uh, according to what we have been told, we should do it in the right way and that we should offer with our heart. That it shouldn't just be rigid and we shouldn't just go through the motions, but that we should offer it with spirit and with truth. And that's what we should do in the, in the assembly or the gathering together uh, for God. The second thing goes right along with that, and that's to glorify God. We worship Him and we glorify Him in the assembly of the church. 
In Romans chapter 15 and verse number 6, that ye may with one mind and with one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we can get together and again, it, it, it symbolizes the unity that we should have. With one mind and with one mouth that we can glorify God together. And that's where we can do that in the assembly. Yeah, you can glorify God outside the assembly, sure. Should you glorify God outside the assembly? Sure, absolutely. We should glorify God in everything that we do, in word and in deed. But part of our purpose in gathering together, whether it's on the first day of the week or whether it's any other time that we assemble together, the purpose of that should be to glorify God. Number three, we gather together to be edified. Can you be edified outside the assembly? Sure, you can be edified. You can read on your own. You can get together with, with groups of people and study the word and you can be edified. But when we assemble, there's an express desire of God that edification takes place. Uh, and he talks about that a lot in the scriptures. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. He that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret, that the church may receive edifying. There are other verses where he talks about, let all things be done unto edifying. He wants edification to take place in the assembly. The purpose of the assembly of the saints is so that edification can take place. That implies teaching and learning. Speaking and receiving the word of God. And that should take place in the assembly. And finally for the purpose of fellowship. Now, can we fellowship outside the assembly? Sure. We fellowship in different ways and different manners all the time. But he wants fellowship to take place in the assembly. He wants there to be a reason for us to get together. And those reasons are the things that we talked about. But he wants us to fellowship together in the assembly. In Acts 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Those folks wanted to get together. They wanted to be around one another because when they were around one another, they gained strength. When they were around one another, they were edified. When they were around one another, maybe it was easier to glorify God. Maybe it was easier to worship. They could be accountable to one another. All those things are extremely important as far as why we would get together and why we would assemble. And so my question is, why wouldn't we want to assemble? As Christians who serve a God that has built this body of Christ, and with Christ being the head and each of us being members of that body, why wouldn't we want to get together? Why wouldn't we want to assemble together? Why wouldn't we want to show unity to the world, to show that we are unified. Why wouldn't we want to sing together and offer praises together and worship Him together and glorify Him together? Why wouldn't we want to learn from one another? Why wouldn't we want to have fellowship with one another? There's just not a good reason to not want to. As Christians, that should be our great desire to want to assemble together. And like I said, based on what I read in the book of Acts and what I see uh, as examples set forth, those folks want to get together all the time. 
They didn't care if it was the Sabbath day or the Lord's day or Wednesday or Friday. They wanted to get together. They wanted to assemble. And I think it's because great strength comes from that. You know, I think about some of the times that been, you know, we have week-long gospel meetings. And we'll meet together every night for that week. You know, by the end of that week, you may be tired, but I guarantee you, you're closer to God because of assembling that much and being together that much. And you feel stronger, and you feel uh, like you're not going to fall to those sins quite as easily during that week as as maybe you normally would. Why? Because we're going to go assemble. We're going to go worship. We hold one another accountable. And those things are very, very important. I want to shift now and look a little bit about at the structure of the assembly. God has prescribed a, a structure that the assembly should, should uh, what it should look like. Uh, within that, you know, I'm going to be honest. He's given us probably a lot more flexibility than what we take. Uh, as, as I reflect back over my life, you know, we, we haven't changed the, the format and the structure of this assembly very much. And, and that's probably a good thing. I'm not saying that, that we should have drastic changes in the assembly. But I'm saying if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and we read every example in Scripture that we can find and pull out that tells us uh, what an assembly of the church looks like, uh, there's probably quite a bit of, of flexibility. But there's also some, some overarching principles that he sets forth uh, that tells us some things we should do and, and as such some things that we can't do or shouldn't do. And so we'll talk about those things a little bit today. Uh, for time's sake, we're going to probably leave a lot of the, the bigger details for later studies and kind of get into those things one by one, um, Lord willing. First of all, we notice, and, and I referred to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, we do rely very, very heavily on 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to tell us a lot of things about the assembly of the church. And it ends in this way. It says, let all things be done decently and in order. And so one of the big overarching principles of gathering together is that it's done in an orderly fashion, that it's done decently, that there's not this everything going on all at once and and uh, no order and no ability to learn. Because remember, he wants us to worship. He wants us to glorify. He wants us to edify. He wants us to be doing all these things together. And so he says, let it be done decently and in order. You know, Brother Sean mentioned to me one day when we were talking about this. That maybe what's decently and in order in the United States is different than what's decently in order in Nigeria. And I think that's probably true. Some of their customs, uh, what, what they think is, is decent and in order, uh, we might not think is decent and in order. And if they came into our assembly and did those things, we might be a little uncomfortable with that. If there was clapping going on or something like that, and I don't know if they clap or not, but uh, I've seen assemblies of Christians where, where clapping was going on, and man, we might get a little uncomfortable with something like that. But somebody might think that's perfectly decent and in order. They're, they're praising God and in those kinds of ways. So uh, we need to, to think about that in terms of, and the elders of the church have to make some decisions. Uh, 
And we have to, to follow that and uh, should follow that. What, what is decent and in order uh, can be a little bit different, and we need to think about that and keep that in mind. The other thing we see in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, I think, points out some things that, that need to occur in assemblies of the church when we gather together. He says, how is it then, brethren? You know, we don't really talk like that today. <laughs> I'm not going to come up to you and say, how is it then, brethren? But Paul's saying, here's the deal. You know, he's talked about several things, a lot about tongues in the first few verses of this chapter and making sure that we're doing things orderly as it relates to tongues and having an interpreter and making sure that, that edification takes place. He's really, really emphasizing that. But he gets to verse 26 and he, and he says, here's the deal. You know, you want to know what the deal is? Here's the deal. When you come together. So again, we see coming together. He starts off 1 Corinthians by talking about when the whole church be come together. He's talking about the assembly. He's talking about when we gather for religious purposes. He's talking about all those definitions that we looked at, whether you want to call it church or synagogue or congregation, assembly, whatever you want to call it. That's what he's talking about here. A, a group of Christians assembled, just like we are here today. He says, you come together to do that. You come together. And then he says, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done and edifying. So Paul breaks it down for us, the structure of the assembly. In one nice little concise place, he breaks down what do things look like in the assembly. What has God prescribed for the assembly of the church. Well God has prescribed first of all. That it take place in a together arrangement. That we be together. That's the definition of assembly. That we gather together. But he wants us to be together. In a together arrangement. In the assembly of the church. If we look in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. and uh, verse number 18. He says this. For first of all when you come together. In the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now, in verse 17, he tells them that I'm not praising you for what I'm about to, to tell you. This is not praise for you. He says, I'm disappointed. I praise you not. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there be divisions among you. The Corinthians were getting together, but they were divided. They weren't unified in their assembly. Now their division took place along the lines of rich and poor. And the rich people would get together and they would use up all of the, of the communion or they were doing it as a feast. And he, he would not uh, praise them for that. But then the poor people didn't get anything. They didn't get, get any uh, communion. And so he's, he's chastising them for that. But that was their division. You had rich people and you had poor people. But, you know, we can extend that division to anything you want to talk about. We can divide along gender lines. We can divide along racial lines. We can divide over just about anything. We can divide rich and poor. We can divide by age. He's saying, don't let there be divisions among you. Don't let those divisions occur. It's a together arrangement. And when we assemble, he wants it to be a together arrangement. He said, every one of you hath a psalm. And so there's singing that needs to take place in the assembly of the church. 
In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. So there's singing that takes place in the assembly of the church. We've done that today, haven't we? And I, Can you sing outside the church? Sure, you can sing outside the church. But inside the assembly, he wants singing to take place. And Paul says that. When you come together, every one of you hath a psalm. He also says every one of you hath a doctrine. And that's just a, a teaching. Some translations say a lesson. When you come together, let every one of you have have a, a lesson or t a teaching. And so teaching, that goes back to that edification. There should be teaching, there should be learning. And we can read lots of places where this takes place. Acts 20 and verse 7 says, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and he continued his speech until midnight. Paul preached to them. He taught. There was a doctrine that took place there. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks in great detail about how that teaching is to take place. Who can do the teaching? Who shouldn't do the teaching? Uh, it talks about uh, the number of teachers that should be teaching at any given time and those kind of things. Uh, we're not going to get into all that today. Lord willing, we'll do that later. But teaching should and must take place in the assembly of the church. It goes back to that edification. He then after that, and if you think back to that verse in, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says that every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a uh, revelation, hath an interpretation. So tongue, revelation, interpretation. You say, well, those are not things we do in our assembly. But all those things refer to, to the teaching there. If you read the context of 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about teaching in tongues, and making sure there's an interpreter. And if there's not an interpreter holding your peace. He's talking about prophesying by receiving that divine prophecy. Or a spiritual gift of prophecy. Where you could get up and teach and prophesy uh, by divine revelation. And he's talking about having the ability to interpret those teachings. So that people learn and so that people be edified. All those things are, are things that we look at and, and talk about in terms of, of teaching. Now, we don't have tongue speaking in, in this assembly. We don't have divine prophecy. Uh, God's not going to hit Jace with a, with a revelation of prophecy and then him just come up here and start talking about things we've never heard of before that we need to learn and need to know. And I'm not going to have the ability to miraculously interpret if somebody comes and starts speaking in a foreign language. Uh, we just don't have those things. And so... If you think I'm skipping over those things, I'm not. Those are just things that we don't have uh, anymore in the assembly today. And uh, if you look back, and I don't have this one on the board, but if you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. We know in part, we prophesy in part. He said those things were going to go away. And so it's no surprise we don't have those things in the assembly of the church today. Uh, again, that's probably a whole other lesson for a whole other time. But we're not going to have tongue speaking. And we're not going to have uh, a miraculous tongue speaking. We're not going to have a miraculous interpretation or prophecy. But those things in that verse refer to teaching and it refers to praying. 
If you study in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about someone praying in an unknown tongue. And so there's prayer that takes place and, and is prescribed in that verse uh, to take place in the assembly as well. Can you pray outside the assembly? I sure hope you're praying outside the assembly. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, uh, praying everywhere. Uh, but we need to pray in the assembly as well. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 6 and verse 6. Uh, here we have, uh, of course, the beginning of this verse is talking about uh, there was a problem that the that the, the Grecians weren't, their widows weren't getting served and weren't, weren't uh, receiving the meals that everybody else was receiving. There arose a murmuring. Uh, they had some complaints, and, and the apostles decided that they were going to appoint some people to oversee that work. Uh, and it says they called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So again, we have the apostles uh, that were leaders in that day. They called the multitude of the disciples unto them. And they had a gathering. They were gathered together for religious purposes. They had an assembly. And they talked with the members of the church at that assembly. And they said, here's the deal. Here's what's going on. And we want you to appoint, pick out certain men and appoint them to oversee this work. And so then they did that. And it says whom in verse 6, whom when they sat before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And so in this assembly, this you know, they basically ordained or appointed these men to oversee that work. And uh, they prayed before them and, and then sent them over that work. So as we look in, in 1 Corinthians 14, these are the things that it talks about as being part or integral to an assembly. That we're in a together arrangement in that assembly. That we sing. That there's teaching that takes place and praying that takes place. And it talks about those things. Hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath an interpretation, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. And then we see a couple of other verses in other places that prescribe a few more things on the assembly that takes place on the first day of the week. And so while 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't address those, we see in other places where they are addressed. And one of those things is, of course, communion. That when we gather together on the first day of the week, we partake of the Lord's Supper. We observe the Lord's Supper. We remember Him and commemorate His death as we examine ourselves. In Acts 20 and 7, we looked at a moment ago, but it says upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to part on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. Some places translate this when they came together to take the holy meal. When they came together for communion, for the purpose of communion on the first day of the week. And so on the first day of the week, that's another part of the assembly that has to take place is that communion. And then in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that contribution is part of that uh, assembly on the first, first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And so you'll, you'll recognize those components there of, of worship, singing, teaching, praying, communion, contribution. We talk about those things a lot. But hopefully you can see 
where we get that information. It comes right out of the Word of God. It comes right out of the Scriptures. And we can see Paul prescribe it. Uh, and in, in other places in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, these are the commandments of the Lord. God's prescribing it. Not just Paul. God's prescribing that as components of worship. And then in a couple of other places, we get these things that have to take place on the first day of the week as well. So as we think about those things, let's consider this. 1 Corinthians 11 and 17, I referenced this a moment ago, but I want to read it to you. It says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Did you know we can assemble together and it be for the worse? If we're not doing things according to God's prescribed order, if we're not doing things according to the way God wants us to do those things, he says you're coming together for the worse. Now their problem was, number one, they had divisions, rich versus poor. And number two, he said you're not even taking the Lord's Supper when you gather together anymore. You've turned it into something totally different. You're not even partaking of it. And so that was their big problems in coming together for the worse. But you know, just like we talked about, the Jews had departed a little by little away from worshiping in the temple as they should have been worshiping. We can very easily depart from worshiping in the assembly as we're supposed to be. Yeah, he's given us some flexibility. There doesn't have to be uh, announcements and four songs and then a prayer and then the lesson and then, you know, it doesn't have to go just like that. That's not the prescribed order. The prescribed order is make sure that you're together. It's to make sure that there's singing and that there's teaching and that there's praying and that on the Lord's day there's communion and there's contribution. How we do that, we have some degree of flexibility in, but we can come together for the worse. We start to add other things. We start to, to not be together. We start to cut some of those things out or add to or take away. Then we're coming together for the worse, not for the better. Look at what he says in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse number 13. This is David speaking about the incident that had occurred with Uzzah. When Uzzah and Ahio were, were driving the ark on a new cart and they were bringing the ark down and they thought, man, we finally got the ark back. And, and everything's going to be good because we've got the Ark of the Covenant back where it belongs. But they were bringing it on a new cart. And he says, for because you did it not at the first, the Lord God made a breach upon us. For that we sought him not after the due order. They didn't seek God the way God wanted to be sought. They sought him after their own heart. They were no question doing the right thing. The ark didn't belong where it was. The ark didn't belong there. It belonged with them. It belonged in the, in the tabernacle. That's where the ark belonged. And they went to get it back. Just like they should have done. But they didn't do it after the due order. You see the Levites were supposed to carry it. On staves. And walk with it. And carry it. And they didn't, they didn't do that. I don't know if they just didn't know or didn't pay attention or whether it had been so long since they had the ark that they just decided to do it this way, whatever the case was. Now, our worship is very different than that. 
We live under a different covenant in a different time. But God has prescribed an order whereby we are to worship and whereby we are to assemble together and have fellowship with one another. And that order is very clear that we're to have those things, those, those components within that. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. It kind of makes that word order have a little different meaning there when we think about it in terms of that. The things are to be done in his prescribed order, the way that God wanted. And if we don't seek him after the order of things that he's prescribed, perhaps that assembly is not for the better, but it's for the worse. And as I said in a previous study, we've got to be very careful as we assemble together that we don't let tradition rule what we do like the Jews did with the, with the synagogue. They just let tradition take over. And whatever their oral traditions had told them they should do, that's what they did. And we can be so much the same in the church assembly today that we don't care what the Bible says. We just want to do it according to our tradition. And, and we follow that order. But God has prescribed that order, and God's given us some flexibility in his order. He's given us some restrictions in his order. And Lord willing, that's what we'll get into in future studies to try to better understand what is tradition, and what is law, and what, how should we be behaving in the house of the Lord and the assembly of the church. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.